If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, if you're using one of the pew Bibles provided, you can find that on page 579. If you don't have a Bible at home, you can read, you can take that Bible as a gift from our church to you. 2 Timothy chapter 4, and as you're turning there, I want to ask a somewhat deep and reflective heart question for us all. A question you can think about today, and a question you can ponder further upon in the days and even years ahead in your life. When you die, how do you want to be remembered? When you die, how do you want to be remembered? Do you want to be remembered by certain academic accomplishments? Family activities you got to experience? Sports or musical performance successes? PRs in the gym? For all the gym rats in there, you know what I'm talking about? Personal records? Career goals you were able to achieve? Is it certain financial investments you've made? How big your salary was? How nice your cars or your house was? How many friends you had? How many famous people you've met? How many neat places you've lived or got to travel to or see in your life? Or how about this? Do you want to be remembered by a certain influence you had on others? Some type of lasting impact on the people you were able to touch with your life? Perhaps then it's a certain reputation you want people to remember you by as they eulogize about you at your funeral. You secretly hope, sitting there in the pew this morning, deep down, that people will actually say kind and noteworthy things that hold you up as a trustworthy, loving, and generous person to everyone who knew you, rather than just the silly and trite things that are often said at funerals about your favorite sports team or food you didn't like or a gift at Christmas you wish you didn't get or funny stories at the golf course or frequenting garage sales or even people just spouting off sentimental thoughts about you like I know he or she is looking down from heaven smiling on me. When you die, how do you want to be remembered? Near my house and our church, there is this park and outdoor gathering place called the Heritage Pavilion, right there across the street from the Medical College in Chaffee Crossing. If you ever go out there, you'll see this one particular dedication plaque uh, out by the walking trails. Here's what it says. We have all drunk from wells we did not dig. We have been warmed by fires we did not build. We have sat in the shade of trees we did not plant. We are where we are because of what someone else did. Did you hear that last phrase? We are where we are because of what someone else did. We have what we have. We know what we know. We are what we are because to some extent of the shoulders we are standing on because of the investment someone has made before us or perhaps in us. And we are who we are and we have what we have because of the sacrifices 
an example someone has left for us because of their self-giving actions. And because of their dying to self-attitudes, we are now the recipients of such sweet blessings that we enjoy today, even after they have died and gone on. So when you die, how do you want to be remembered? And when you die, what kind of legacy will you leave behind you for others? Over the last few months, we've been studying Paul's second and final letter to Timothy in the New Testament. And I hope you've been blessed by what we've been studying thus far. I know I have been blessed by being in this letter. Second Timothy has proven to be a wonderful example of what that dedication plaque in Chaffee Crossing is really trying to highlight. That one life set on fire for Jesus, sacrificially investing in the life of another for the glory of God. One life sacrificing for the good of others, coming behind them for their benefit. This wonderful life-on-life investment has been framed for us in a mini-portrait of two men in this letter, as the Apostle Paul had truly been a kingdom-of-God trailblazer for another young and maturing disciple, Timothy. Timothy was becoming what God intended Timothy to become in part because of what Paul had been for Timothy. Timothy was where he was because of what Paul had done for him. From the very beginning of this letter to today's passage, 2 Timothy has been littered with priceless breadcrumbs. Priceless breadcrumbs of what it means to leave a lasting legacy what it means to make an eternal investment and disciple others and how to follow Jesus, which leads to an eternal impact with eternal rewards. Ever since 2 Timothy chapter 3 in particular, Paul has raised the stakes, though. He's raised the bar. He's clap, clap, Timothy, wake up, sit up, and listen. He's raised the intensity on, on what it means to be an obedient follower of Jesus, even in the face of fierce opposition. In the face of harsh and unjust criticism. In the face of faithless, heartless, flaky, and flagrant religious hypocrisy. And so in chapter 3, verses 1 to 9, he describes these difficult and dark days, or the last days, as times of great difficulty and hardship. And he does this by naming 19 characteristics of what will mark people not just outside the church in the world, but friends, inside the church. People who have crept into the church unawares, Paul says, with an outward appearance of godliness, but inside they are full of dead men's bones, which make the demonic deception and heart-wrenching disappointment in pastoral ministry and in church life all the more painful. Then in 2 Timothy 3, 10 to 17, Paul needed to make sure Timothy would remain focused on what matters most when things get dark and when things heat up. And he does that by reminding Timothy of two very important realities. The importance, number one, finding godly examples to imitate and learn from, and number two, studying the scriptures for yourself, to know Christ for yourself so that you might apply the scriptures in all of life. 
Paul, in essence, was trying to give Timothy the clearest, most concise, but life-giving wisdom of what it means to stay the course. Not get sidetracked. Not get distracted. Not rubberneck on the highway of life at all the problems and pressures around you. Paul brings this admonition on Timothy to bear to stay the course in order for Timothy to not get deceived, especially when people he trusted would abandon him, believe lies, and then even believe lies about Timothy like they did Paul. So in order not to become a sad statistic of another hostage in Satan's most wanted men that Satan wanted to take out and disqualify for ministry, Timothy was charged by Paul to stay the course. Continue knowing Christ. Continue knowing his word. And continue applying it to all of life. And then last week we were studying Paul's final charge to Timothy about the importance of preaching. Preaching the word. In delivering God's word as God intended, to speak what God has spoken. To preach the word with authority, with power, with conviction, and with exhortation to the congregation under his care. So then Timothy was charged to preach the word and do so by being ready in season and out of season. And that just simply means preach faithfully the word of God in every circumstance of life. When people were excited to coming to hear his teaching, and when people were becoming disinterested and hardened towards this teaching. What did Paul remind Timothy of in order to stay the course in his preaching ministry? He told him that God is always present and that one day Jesus will judge everyone. Uh, these two realities, friends, would grip Timothy's hands to the pulpit. It would strengthen him. It would embolden him. It would cause him to stand firm and stand tall to fulfill the ministry God gave him. And if you want to look down with me at 2 Timothy 4, you'll see how he ties the bow on really the kind of punctuation on his job description in Paul's last words of instruction to him. Look at 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 to 5. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So if Paul is leaving Timothy a legacy worth imitating and passing on, what can we learn from the life Paul lived? What can we be inspired by and even challenged by and how we're thinking about the life we're living and what people will remember about us when we die? What can we learn from Paul's last words as he was about to depart from this life and meet Jesus? 2 Timothy 4, look with me now in verses 6 to 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is God's word. 
If you're taking notes, here's my main idea, followed by two outline points. Here it is. I'll say it twice. The finished work of Jesus Christ provides what we need to finish our work for him. The finished work of Jesus Christ provides what we need to finish our work for him, and I would say by implication, to keep the faith to the end. Two outline points. Point number one, pour out your life for Jesus because he is worth it. Pour out your life for Jesus because he is worth it. That's verse six. Point number two, finish your life strong for Jesus because he is always faithful and just. Finish your life strong for Jesus because he is always faithful and just. That's verses seven and eight. Let's look at that first point together. Pour out your life for Jesus because he is worth it. Look at it with me there in verse six again. Paul says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering at the time of my departure has come. Here in verse 6, Paul describes his life like a cup filled to the brim that has been fully overturned, a towel that has been tightly and thoroughly squeezed out, a bank account that has been fully spent and emptied in order to pay a price that cost him everything. That everything for Paul was his very life. This imagery here of being poured out is used multiple times throughout the Old Testament scriptures, particularly in the sacrificial system of Israel. For example, Numbers 28 verse 7 says, its drink offering should be a quarter of a hen for each lamb. In the holy place, you shall pour out a drink offering of strong drink to the Lord. The sacrifices of the Old Testament were ordained by God to the nation of Israel and those who had joined their ranks in order to observe certain feast days, Uh, celebrations amongst the people of Israel and to fulfill various duties that they were called to carry out at the worship at the temple. And these included everything from sacrifices offered on personal or corporate sins, as well as memorials and annual remembrances of God delivering his people out of Egypt. It also served as the weekly, monthly, yearly catechisms that instructed people through these sacrifices that God is holy God is just, but also that God is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. And because of that, these free will offerings, these burned offerings, these drink offerings were ingrained into the foundational fabric of their worship. Friends, as God revealed himself in love and mercy to sinners, forgiven sinners would then respond to him in thankful worship. Sinners who had been chosen by God in love and set apart for him as holy, they were to respond in him in humble worship by using sacrifices, sacrifices that God says would please him. Friends, there is so much rhetoric out there today about worship styles, worship music, worship wars, worship this and that, yada, yada, yada. But when you look in the Bible, you know what we see is the heartbeat behind true worship according to God. True worship is fundamentally about revelation, then response. Revelation, then response. God first graciously reveals himself to us. He then mercifully transforms our hearts by his power and love, and then we respond in willful, reverent, 
joyful worship back to him. Friends, that's true worship. It is always revelation, then response. And so commands to offer these sacrifices were given to the people of Israel for this one overarching purpose, to offer from their hearts to their hands back to heaven a pleasing aroma to the Lord. As Exodus 29, 40 to 41 says, And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of a hen of beaten oil and a fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and you shall offer it with a grain offering and its drink offering, as in the morning for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Now sometimes if people are reading their Bibles afresh, particularly the Old Testament for the first time, it's not uncommon for young Christians to ask, well, Pastor Blake, why did God command people to offer sacrifices to him? I mean, was God lonely? Did God need a self-esteem booster shot? Did he need us to help him feel better about himself by giving him sacrifices? Well, of course not. The Lord doesn't need anyone's sacrificial offerings back then, and he doesn't need any offerings from us today. Friends, our God owns the universe. Our daddy is the CEO of everything. He doesn't need anything from creatures. He's the creator. Oh, friends, one of the most abominable, disgusting, blasphemous attempts to worship God is thinking God needs us. One of the greatest hours of idolatry is on Sunday morning in evangelical Bible Belt churches here in America. We are not the point. He is. Oh, friends, our God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He knows all the birds of the hills. All that moves in the field is his, for the world and its fullness are his, we only respond to how great he is. That's worship. You see, friends, from the Old to the New Testament, God has always cared first about our hearts in worship before what we say with our lips and whatever we do with our lives. Friends, do you recall what Jesus said to the Pharisees that offered God this hypocritical lip service? Matthew 15, 7 to 9, you hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That's why King David, when he was found out in his hypocrisy and in his sin of adultery and complicit in murder, he was then rebuked by the prophet Nathan, brought to repentance by the Spirit because of his avalanche of sin that caught up with him. And do you remember what Psalm 51 says? That sweet, penitent, heart-moving psalm about what kind of sacrifices God cares most about. Psalm 51, 16 and 17, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. 
Sometimes our hearts are the primary problem and not the music style we prefer. Sometimes our hearts are too lifted up. They're too haughty. They're too proud. And they're not broken enough. CCBC, the greatest hindrance to Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church being a Christ-exalting, Bible-believing, serious-minded, joyful church will be this one thing. Are our hearts broken and contrite before the Lord? Because that is the sacrifice he will not despise. Pray that God would give each one of us a broken and contrite heart, a broken spirit, humbled by his mercy and gobbled in our focus. He will receive that kind of worship. Friends, why is it so important that I give us all this background on offerings and sacrifices in the Old Testament scriptures? Why is it important to know that God sees not only what we do and say on the outside, but also where our hearts are at on the inside. Well, beloved, that's because true worship that is acceptable to God is always first revelation, then response. True worship is always first about a heart broken and contrite before a holy and just God whose mercy we desperately need. That's why true worship, according to Jesus, friends, is worshiping the Father, not in hypocrisy or lip service or simply going through the motions, checking religious boxes. On the contrary, true worship, genuine worship, worship that is pleasing to the Lord is worship offered to God through Christ in the Spirit based on truth. And that is precisely what we see depicted and displayed through Paul's own example in verse 6. Look down with me again. Notice what he says. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Did you catch that? Paul doesn't say he offered up a cup of wine to an altar. Paul doesn't say he filled up a bowl of incense and then offered it back to God at the local synagogue or temple. No, Paul said that he offered up who? Himself. He himself had been and was being poured out as a drink offering to the Lord. Here Paul wasn't being cute or artistic or trying to have a t-shirt sold at the rock bookstore. No, he is saying something profound and powerfully mind-boggling for Timothy to hear. Paul had offered up, he had poured out his very life as a drink offering to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, do not read on and just keep life as is if you and I are not stopped in our tracks by the profound testimony of that man. Brothers and sisters, this means there is something infinitely important for us to learn here about what it means of a life well lived and what it looks like to live a life that finishes well. 
Paul saw his very existence and meaning for living by finding his identity and who God is for us in Christ. And then he responded back to this good God by giving up everything in his life for Jesus. Friends, what does it mean to offer up your life in pleasing worship to God? It means he gets everything. All the chips have been put in. There's a blank check. He gets to cash how much he wants. And he owns us because Christ shed his blood for us. You see, friends, we cannot offer worship that is pleasing to God if we still think our life is our own. It belongs to him. All of life all the time, all for Christ. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Friends, that doesn't look like leftovers to me. That looks like everything. According to Paul's words in Romans 12.1, according to Paul's example in 2 Timothy 4.6, it means that the Christian life is an all-of-life, all-the-time act of worship to God. That means worship cannot be simply limited to one hour on Sunday, two hours on Sunday, not just a few times throughout the given church calendar week, not just during Christmas or Easter, not just when life is easy, church is comfortable, money is great, people are easy to love, unbelievers are hearing the gospel and being saved. No, according to Paul's example, his very life serves in many ways as a challenge and a rebuke to us. He poured out his life in worship regardless of how people responded to him. He viewed the Christian life as an offering to be offered to God 24-7, 365 days a year, seven days a week. Jesus was not the cherry on top of his ice cream. Jesus wasn't a good luck charm he rubbed when he was in a bind. Jesus wasn't a 911 emergency hotline only when he was in trouble. Jesus wasn't simply a little segment or part of his life. Jesus was his life. The question we have to ask is this, is Jesus truly life for you? Is he everything to you? Not something you do a day a week. Not something you talk about like a pastime hobby. But is he the very reason and meaning and purpose of your life. We can see quite clearly that Paul left a lasting legacy for Timothy. Friends, he lived, breathed, suffered, endured, bore up, sacrificed, and served because of what he believed. But watch this. He poured out his life because of who he knew. You see the difference there? You can know a lot of theology and not know the God it speaks of. You can go to church your whole life 
and put your life in kind of this autopilot where you can spout all the verses and give Jesus as the answer to every question and yet not know him. CCBC, don't fool yourself to thinking you're okay with God just because you're a member here. Do you know him for yourself? Personally? Intimately? Do you walk with him? Do you talk with him? Do you listen to him? Do you tell others about him? Do you honor him? Do you trust him? Friends, living for Jesus cost Paul his very life. Oh, brothers and sisters, what has living faithfully for Jesus cost you? What has obedience to Jesus in the path of selfless, sacrificial service for others for the glory of his name cost you? In the path of being obedient to what God has clearly said in his word and not subjective feelings, what suffering has God brought in your life to bear up for the honor of his name? When your life and my life is over, will people be able to say during the eulogizing time, he poured out his life, she poured out her life for Christ's sake? Or will it be something far less? Will love for Christ, service to Christ, dependence on Christ be missing from the eulogy and obituary altogether? May it not be so. What did Jesus say to his disciples there in the upper room on the night of his betrayal? Luke 22, 19 and 20, and he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me, verse 20, and likewise the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Friends, Paul's cup was only a faint representation of the cup the Son of God poured out for us. What was in the cup? It was the new covenant in his blood. Christ poured out his life for sinners like his disciples who abandoned him and betrayed him. Sinners poured out his life, his very blood for sinners like the unbelieving Jews and the Roman centurions who put him on that cross and killed him. Christ poured out his blood being crushed under the wrath of God for our sin that we might be covered with forgiveness of sin and be recipients of the blessings of the new covenant. The new covenant and its promises of eternal life, eternal security, eternal joy, and steadfast love to all of us who would turn from our sins and trust in him. To my non-Christian friend, why should you give your life to Jesus? Because he poured out his life for you. He poured out his life. He shed his blood that we might be justified before a holy God who hates and punishes all sin. You see, Paul, who wrote this, once hated Christ. 
But Christ's sacrifices for Paul eventually melted Paul's hardened heart towards him. Friends, that's what God is always in the business of doing. Taking the most hard-headed, hard-hearted, rebellious, egotistical, prideful, self-righteous people and bringing them to the end of themselves. To take them from being rebels against God to being worshipers to the king. Never underestimate the power of the gospel to change even the hardest sinner's heart. We're examples of it, right? Paul knew that in pouring out his life in obedience to Jesus, it would be costly. And that's why he says there in verse 6, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. The word there, departure, it's used uh, to speak of a ship being loosed from a dock or its moorings. One commentator says this, quote, it pictures a ship lifting anchor, tossing off the ropes, and rising on the tide so the winds can carry her to sea. Ironically, Paul didn't view his death as a tragedy to be indefinitely and fearfully avoided at all cost. He viewed his death not as dread, but as a doorway. In fact, he viewed his death more like a bon voyage on a cruise ship, leaving a dock to depart to his eternal home of endless joy with Christ. Paul said about five years earlier why he saw death not as a dreaded doomsday, but as a delightful departure not to be avoided at all cost. Listen to what he says in Philippians 1, just five years earlier, 21 to 23. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Friends, do you have loved ones who have already died and they died as believers in the Lord? Well, if they've departed, whether recently or a long time ago, can I give you a little secret? It's far better for them. It's far better for them. They're far better off. Why? There's no more doubts. There's no more division. There's no more lies, no more fears, no more anxiety, no more depression, no more prodigal children, no more abusive spouses, no more second-guessing and regrets, no more battles with sin, no more memory of your past, no more sadness, no more crying, no more pain. Because in Christ, friends, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? Neither death nor life. Friends, we too can face death with such confidence if we truly know the Lord. His perfect love graciously cast out all sinful fear of judgment and condemnation. His love has been poured out in our hearts through the Spirit who assures us that we belong to him. Friends, if the spirit of Christ dwells within us today, then we can be 100% certain he will welcome us with open arms on the last day. 
So how do we cultivate this courageous faith starting today? How do we pursue this selfless attitude now in our life of sacrificial love pouring out our lives for Christ, which makes us see death as a delightful departure rather than a fearful dread to be avoided at all costs? That leads to our second point, point number two. Finish your life strong for Jesus because he is always faithful and just. Paul says, look there in verse 7 and 8. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Friends, Paul viewed the Christian life not as walking through a field of dandelions, not as buying little angel figurines and strumming a harp. He viewed the Christian life as an athletic and a wartime mentality metaphor. That's because the fight for truth and the fight for faith is fierce. It's relentless. It's long, and at times it's exhausting. Brothers and sisters, that should be a form of encouragement to us this morning. Battle fatigue is a real thing in the Christian life. If you're not feeling any sense of weariness in the fight, you're probably not fighting hard enough. You probably are not facing opposition because you're not a threat to the evil one. Those who desire to live a godly life, what did Paul say? In Christ Jesus will be persecuted, 2 Timothy 3.12. It's normal, it's common, it's to be expected. If, if you and I don't sense any real agonizing fight on Monday morning, even on Sunday morning, any need of endurance in the faith, then friends, we need to ask ourselves if we're truly walking with the Jesus of the Bible. And if we describe the Christian life or Christian ministry in terms that are really a fabric softener on Paul's words here, then we're redefining and watering down what real Christianity is or even what real gospel ministry is like. And we saw that earlier from 2 Timothy 2. You want to turn back, just look back, 2 Timothy 2. This is nothing new. 2 Timothy 2, verses 3 to 5, he told Timothy, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who listed him. Verse 5, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Paul described serving the Lord and his relationship with Jesus like a fight worth fighting for, like a race worth running the distance for, and according to verse 8, a crown worth eagerly waiting for. Crown of righteousness, Paul says, that Jesus awards to all who love him now and who will love his appearing. What is this crown of righteousness he refers to? Friends, it's that final glorified state of righteousness where we are perfectly made righteous like our righteous judge, Jesus Christ. Friends, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ today, we are now and forever justified by faith in Jesus Christ. 
as Mark Jones has said, when we first believe, we are as justified as we ever will be. It's a once for all permanent reality that you are declared righteous before a holy God because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus to your account. For he made him who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God through Christ. Friends, we are, though, a still an incomplete masterpiece. We might be declared righteous according to God's law, but we have not been made fully righteous according to his predetermined design. And here, Paul and athlete, in, in Paul's day, athletes would be crowned with a wreath given to victors in Greek races. And Paul says in elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 9 that we, like a runner, have a prize much greater than an Olympic athlete. A crown that's not perishable, but that is imperishable, that Jesus himself will reward. He will crown us to everyone who finishes the race. To everyone who fulfills their course. This permanent crown, this imperishable wreath, also comes with eternal rewards. Not only making us perfect like Christ, but there is going to be a purifying judgment seat that every believer gives an account before, before Jesus Christ, the righteous judge, who will reward every true believer who has served him and loved him. Fellow Christian, on the day of judgment, did you know there is no act of obedience that you and I have done for Jesus that's gone overlooked by him? Many of us are discontent in our jobs because we wish our boss would notice everything we do. The king of kings sees everything that his servants do. And friends, it's an amazing thing that Jesus, the righteous judge, would take forgiven sinners who really don't deserve anything but hell and reward us. Friends, when you look in the book of Revelation, Any crowns we receive, when we behold him in glory, what will we do with them? We'll bow before him. Friends, keep being faithful to Jesus Christ. He's not a stingy master. He doesn't overlook and he does not forget. He will reward every act of faith, every secret prayer you've ever offered in faith to him, every act of kindness, or obedience, every bit of suffering you have borne up for his name, it's in his book. Keep pressing on. So what is this good fight then that Paul fought? What is this finished race or completed race he's talking about? An athlete, a soldier? Well, look what he says in the last part of verse 7. I have kept, let's say it together, the faith. Let's say it again. I have kept the faith. Paul tells Timothy that he's been faithful to proclaim and protect the Christian faith, the gospel message, the good deposit of all sound doctrine, theology that undergirds what a true church is, theology that undergirds what a true Christian is. He hasn't tampered with God's word. He hasn't watered it down so as to please the masses. And Paul says he's also been faithful to stay focused on keeping the main thing, the main thing, which is loving Jesus. 
Did you know there is one thing better than serving Jesus? It's enjoying him. You understand that, right? I am looking forward to the day I no longer have to preach. You might say, really? Yeah, it's really hard work with little immediate rewards, and I am just looking forward to the day where I'm just resting and enjoying Jesus. That's why this is not an idol to me. I don't need this to love Jesus. I get to preach because he's a worthy savior to preach about. Friends, never lose sight of that. In the midst of the junk and busyness and confusion in your life, don't let duty be robbed of your delight in him. If our hearts are cold to serving him, it's probably time we do some heart checks of do we enjoy him? Do we commune with him? Do we not only sing about his love, but experience it and know it? You see, Paul saw keeping the faith is simply saying, I'm loving Jesus, clinging to Jesus, looking to Jesus, trusting in Jesus, giving my life in humble service to Jesus. And more than that, you know what Paul says? I long to be with Jesus more than any other longing in my life. Friends, do you eagerly long to see Jesus face to face? That's a real question, by the way. That's not a sermon point. That's my heart to you this morning. Do you long to see Jesus not as a five-letter black word in a Bible, but face to face? Do you long to see him? Bow down before him, sit with him, converse with him, and behold him in all his matchless beauty and glory. Do you long, friends, to depart from this life like a ship leaving a dock to fellowship with him more than every other longing or desire you have in your life? Everyone in this room has unmet expectations and unfulfilled desires. And you know what I want to say? According to God's word, it's there for a reason. God doesn't give us everything our hearts desire here so that we will longingly desire him there. Praise God, he gives us an aching and longing for unfulfilled desires because it makes us long more for him. Charles Spurgeon once showed his longing to be with Jesus when he prayed this. Above all long-expected Messiah, do come. Earth travails for your coming. The whole creation groans in pain together until now. Your own expect you. Listen to what he says. We are longing till we are weary for your coming. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Amen and amen. That's the battle cry of the first century church, was it not? 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. What is the last petition in the entire Bible? Revelation twenty two twenty. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Friends, if we 
are not longing to see Jesus face to face, then we should ask Jesus to show us why we should. Lord, cause the things of this world to grow strangely dim in the light and the glory and the beauty of his face. Friends, even when life was really hard and painful for Paul, did you notice Paul didn't give up? He didn't quit. He didn't bow out. He didn't throw in the towel. He didn't walk away from the church. He didn't walk away from Jesus like others did in his life. Like others might be tempted to do in your life. Friends, are you tempted this morning, if you are honest, to walk away from Jesus? Doubts have crept in. Wondering if it's even worth it. That whatever salvation experience you had years ago, was it really genuine? Are you tempting, looking at the cost and thinking it's not worth it anymore? Friends, why is it that some professing believers get sidelined into uselessness in the kingdom because of terrible choices they've made? Why is it that some pastors in ministry become disqualified and even quit the ministry altogether? Why do some people, even in the church, become so jaded and disillusioned that they're on the verge of shipwrecking their faith? In an article entitled, Many Aspire, But Few Obtain, Walt Hendrickson once made a sobering observation for why many start out well, but don't finish well in the Christian race. Listen to what he says. When I was at Wycliffe Bible Translators Jungle Camp in 1961 and 1962, we used to go on survival hikes. I loved camping out in the jungle. We would build a campfire and sleep around it in our lintos. We built a big fire because fire drove the wild animals deep into the jungle. But if you happened to wake up during the night as the campfire dwindled down, you would observe that the lower the campfire got, the braver the animals became and the closer to the camp they crept. They formed a circle around the camp and you could see those pairs of eyes looking at you from the forest. It was an incentive to throw a few more logs on, not so much because the night was cold, is because you didn't know what was behind those set of eyes. In many respects, that's what is happening today in American evangelical Christianity. My generation and the generation that came before me were moral generations. The generation now on the scene is an immoral generation. As the fires of evangelical Christianity grow dim, as biblical preaching diminishes across the nation, and as people give themselves more and more to sin, greed, the affluent life, permissiveness, and other selfish pursuits, then the eyes of the evil one come closer and closer into the camp. Men come and go, and the attrition rate in the Christian life is absolutely horrendous. In the final analysis, many aspire, but few obtain. Many begin well, but precious few end well. Sounds like Jesus' words, doesn't it? From Matthew chapter 7. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. 
and those who find it are few. No wonder the Apostle Peter warned believers in his day of the danger of those eyes through the woods coming closer to them. 1 Peter 5, verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Friends, God is sovereign over all things. And we are responsible for our sin. And there's a third one working behind the scenes. Satan and his demonic minions. Satan only has one mission against our life. He comes to kill, steal, and destroy. He's the father of lies. He's the deceiver of the whole world. He blinds the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. He leads people along like a dog on a leash who are spiritually dead and don't know Jesus. And he wreaks havoc even in the church. 2 Timothy 3, friends, read it again. It's not describing pagan people out there. It's speaking about people who have the appearance of godliness but deny the power thereof. Friends, be sober-minded. Be watchful. The enemy hates a gospel-preaching church. The enemy hates faithful Christians who are counting the cost and following Jesus. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Stay close to the fires of the gospel and stay close to the warmth of God's people and we'll make it home. Let me offer five words of exhortation to us. So we think about Paul's words here to Timothy, his last words, and how we too might be discipled to think what it means to live a life where we don't start out strong, but we actually finish strong. We actually keep the faith. Number one, keep the faith one day at a time. Keep the faith one day at a time. How do we do that? Preach the gospel and its promises to yourself one day at a time. The gospel and its promises are the bonfire that keeps those eyes away. C.J. Mahaney once said, a cross-centered life is made up of cross-centered days. Every Lord's Day, friends, listen to the gospel afresh. The gospel's not just for unbelievers. It is for Christians every single Lord's Day. Ask God to soften your heart instead of tuning the preacher out and to restore to you the joy of your salvation. Friends, there is no greater motivation for the Christian life than hearing afresh, Jesus paid it all. Jesus finished his work on the cross that we might be secure and able to finish our work for him. Friends, we don't work for our salvation. We are simply working out what God has worked in. He reveals and we respond.
That's worship. Our grip might be weak, but his almighty grip is strong. Our feet may feel like they're slipping, but he will hold us fast. Friends, keep the faith one day at a time. Number two, run your race with Christ and not someone else's race for Christ. Run your race for Christ and not someone else's race for Christ. Friends, each believer, I mean, literally all of us, our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. He loves us collectively and he loves us individually. Each Christian has a custom-made course, a custom-made race, a custom-made fight that God has custom-made for each of his children. Isn't that exactly what we hear in Hebrews 12, verse 1? Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance, listen, the race that is set before us. We all have the same prize, but the race may look different from Christian to Christian. Friends, that means it is foolish to envy someone else's life. That is foolish to be jealous of someone else's race. What will happen if you enter a 5K or a 10K or half marathon, but you're focused on a race over there and not your own? Well, First of all, you're going to get hit by somebody who doesn't like you. Get out the way. <laughs> or you're going to go the wrong direction. Or you're not going to run your race. You're focused on someone else's race. We rubberneck too much in the Christian life. What happened with John and Peter at the end of Jesus' ministry there? After he rose from the dead, gave him a nice little breakfast. One was too concerned about Peter. Peter, what about him? Hey, you, you follow me. Run your race. Don't be too focused on someone else's race. Number three, find a believer who appears to be fighting well and running well and imitate their faith. Find a believer who appears to be fighting well and running well and imitate their faith. Friends, when you join a local church, God has those examples all around us. It's like a room of mirrors. Look for believers that inspire you to grow in godliness. Grow in hospitality. Grow as a husband. Grow as a wife. Grow as a father. Grow as a mother. Grow in being a good friend. Grow in knowing your Bible. Grow in sharing the gospel. Grow in giving generously. What did Hebrews 13, 7 say? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Friends, if God has blessed you with mature men as pastors and elders, and they meet the qualifications found in Scripture for that office, then they are gifts from Christ to the church. Ephesians 4.11. They're not perfect men. I'm the first to tell that about myself. But they are gifts to the church to set an example for the congregation's faith to imitate. Find a believer who appears to be fighting well and running well and imitate their faith. Number four. This is an interesting one but I do think this is the one you're going to need to ponder upon longer. If we're going to keep the faith, number four, pray for God to show you areas of sin. Okay, that's pretty normal to pray. Listen to this one. And to show you unfinished business in your life. 
Pray for God to show you areas of sin, clear sin. You've rebelled against God. You've done something that the Lord is bringing to the mind. You can't sweep it under the rug anymore, etc. But also for God to show you unfinished business in your life. For example, at the Lord's Supper, you'll hear me lead us in prayer at times, this confession. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we have done those things which we ought not to have done. We should all pray regularly, friends. Lord, what things have I left undone which I ought to have done? And is there anything I haven't done which I should have done? There's sins of commission and sins of omission. Use that in your weekly prayer time. Have I left anything undone that I should have done? And have I not done what I should be doing? Whatever the Lord reveals, get to it. Get at it. Get it done. God will not show us what to do next in our life until we obey him and what he's already showing us to do right now. Delayed obedience to the king of kings is disobedience to him. Number five, lastly, saturate your mind with a distinctly Christian perspective on death. Saturate your mind with a distinctly Christian perspective on death. Do you and I have a distinctly Christian perspective on death or a worldly one? Beloved, let me give you a theology of death according to Christians. Death is our last enemy to be destroyed. 1 Corinthians 15, 26. And every time a loved one dies, or anyone for that matter, we are reminded of Adam's rebellion in the garden. Death exists because our forefathers, Adam and Eve, our first parents, sinned against a holy God in that garden. Death entered the world through sin, and death spread to all men, Romans 5.12. But according to 2 Timothy 1.10 that we've already covered, Jesus' death and resurrection, quote, has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Friends, that means for the Christian, death is not the most dreadful thing we should dread, but rather a departure to endless joy, like a ship leaving the dock to a boundless sea with an inseparable fellowship with Jesus. Friends, that has massive implications for how we're viewing death right now. Let me give you a few. It has implications for how we might care for aging parents, friends who are terminally sick with a no cure in front of them and other end-of-life questions. Christians should prayerfully consider medical services in certain situations like hospice care for loved ones when fighting the inevitable could make the dying process much worse for them. One doctor wisely gives this sensitive advice that I think is worth hanging your hat on. He says this, a death is merciful in its circumstances or a blessing when in the life being lived, the possibility of enjoying the goods of life has been forever lost. Friends, pray for wisdom if you're caring for loved ones 
who might be facing terminal sickness. Those are sensitive and challenging matters. But as Christians, if we're going to think about finishing well and keeping the faith, we should also be thinking well and Christianly about not only our death, but also those we're caring for. The early church father, let me go into the second implication there. The second implication for why we should have a distinctly Christian view of death is that it shows us why fearing people over God is futile and absurd. Fearing people over God is futile and absurd. The early church father, John Chrysostom, once said, if you knew how quickly people would forget you after your death, you will not seek in your life to please anyone but God. I'm glad you could laugh at that because it's both humorous and convicting. Friends, if the Father chose us to give us faith, if the Christ, the righteous judge, died for us to have faith, if the Spirit makes us alive to believe by faith, then friends, why on earth would we want to try to please anyone more than Jesus? Why would any of us care more about what other people think than what he thinks? Jesus paid it all. He finished his work for us. So spend the rest of your life finishing the work he gives you and keep the faith in pleasing him. Lastly, this implication about thinking Christianly about death is that it helps us think about how to leave legacies that make much of Christ for the good of others. Much of Christ for the good of others. Tim Challies has said, what we aim to leave behind after we die sets the course for how we intend to live. If we're going to leave a legacy of faithfulness, a legacy of finishing well, friends, it's going to require humility, right? If our life is going to be all for Christ, and even in our last hour, honoring Christ, as Paul did, it's going to require this first starting block. Daily dying to self. Daily dying to self. What did John the Baptist pray? I must decrease so that Christ might increase. Friends, we must die to self because of the one who died for us. And the life we now live by faith in the Son of God who lived his life, who died in our place, who rose again from the dead and has promised to return. Friends, he's purchased us an inheritance. He's promised to keep us to the end. He's promised to help us, strengthen us, sustain us, to finish the race, to fight the good fight, and to keep the faith. The 17th century Welsh Puritan minister, Vavasor Powell, exhorts us with this prayer. Pray that your last days and last works may be the best. And that when you come to die, you may have nothing else to do but die. The finished work of Jesus Christ provides what we need to finish our work for him and to keep our faith to the end. CCBC, keep the faith. Keep the faith. Keep the faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful and challenging example of the Apostle Paul who poured out his life 
because Christ poured out his life for him. And Father, we pray even now that you would help us think Christianly about our life and our death as we run the race you have set before us and not be too preoccupied about the race someone else is running for you. Father, we pray that here at CCBC, we truly would keep the faith, that every follower of Christ in here would see that we have been given gifts in this church to imitate, to learn from, to spur us on. And Father, we pray we would sing together as one voice, as your people, singing that Christ is our only hope in life and death. It's in his name we pray. Amen.